Well, welcome to A Reason for Hope. My name is Adrian, and I'm co-hosting today with our senior pastor, Scott Richards. Hello, Here sir. I am. It's <laughs> <laughs> this guy. Yeah. And, uh, of course, our... This guy. Uh, his right-hand man and all-around all great guy, Sean Richards. This guy. That guy. <laughs> that guy. And, uh, yeah, we're so grateful you're here. Happy Friday. We hope you uh, had a good week. This is A Reason for Hope. If you're new and tuning in for the first time, this is a Bible answer program where people uh, can join the live stream and ask questions about the Christian worldview, about faith, about whether or not Christianity is reasonable or historically accurate or whatever it is that's on your mind when it comes to the historic Christian faith, comparative religions, and so on. Uh, there's multiple ways you can join us. You can join us on Facebook, where you can, uh, if you have a Facebook account, you'll need one in order to watch the live stream, but you just join the live stream, use the comment section to ask your question. We just ask that it's a sincere question from the heart. Uh, it doesn't matter what it's about, as long as it pertains to the Christian faith or world religions, uh, that kind of thing, uh, we'd encourage you to join us. We also live stream simultaneously to YouTube. So if you go to our YouTube channel, also on the screen there, uh, just search for a reason for hope. And if you see that little red icon with the white dove, then you know you found the right place and you can join us there. If you want to avoid social media altogether, we also live stream to our website where you can uh, not only leave questions, uh, but you can also uh, make prayer requests. Uh, so you can watch the live stream right there. Uh, there's a little chat box where you can leave your question. And um, if you want to, to make a prayer request, uh, our staff here and our prayer team would be happy to go before the Lord on your behalf. So that's just our calvarychristianfellowship.com, and then just click that Watch Live tab, and that's how you can check that out. Now, if you are a part of our community, we do have an app, which you can also listen to all past episodes of A Reason for Hope, as well as watch the live stream of our services. We do a Wednesday evening uh, Oasis service, as we call that, and uh, we're currently going through the book of Ezekiel, so I'd encourage you to check timely, that out. Timely, timely stuff. Yes, yep. very, very much so. <clears throat> we also are doing a series in the book of Acts on Sunday mornings. We have three services that we live stream there. And on this app, you can not only uh, keep up what's going on, on on events and small groups and our services, there's also a nifty little Bible, uh, digital Bible uh, part of the app that you can make notes, highlight texts, things like that. And so you can download that from the Apple or Google Play Store as well as add our channel for any live streaming content that we provide on any Amazon or Roku smart devices. So if you have an Amazon Fire Stick or some kind of like device like that, or a Roku d device, uh, just search for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. You can add us to that and watch our content that way. If you want to ask a question on this program and do so maybe uh, perhaps a little more uh, discreetly, you can just email us also. So we encourage you to take advantage of that if you prefer. I will be checking these different sources out throughout the program, and if you have a question, we will try to get to it live, right here and right now. So that email address is questionsforhope at gmail.com. That's questionsforhope at gmail.com. also encourage you to follow our senior pastor on X, formerly Twitter, and you can do so at scottr4h, at scottr4h. With that said, we'll take a moment to pray and ask the Lord to be here with us and with you, those of you who are joining in, either live or after the fact. Uh, Sean, would you be so gracious as to take a moment? My grace as well. 
Dad, thank you that we have the chance to be here. Fill my Father and I with your spirit and allow your voice to reach your people exactly where and how they need to receive you, whether it's in communicating your patience or giving us opportunity to receive correction. Let it all be done with you as the focus and fellowship with you as the goal. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, plenty of stuff going on uh, prophetically. Uh, you know, probably... Uh, one of uh, the most uh, interesting developments. We told you that today, at uh, on November third at three p.m., uh, Hassan Nasrallah, who is a thoroughgoing follower of Shiite Islam, uh, that has all kinds of superstitious uh, notions about the meaning of numbers and dates. Uh, the third of November at three o'clock, the first speech he was going to publicly give on uh, the uh, conflict going on between uh, Israel and Hamas. Uh, 313, there are 313 commanders who supposedly will go before the Imam Mahdi, their version of the Muslim Messiah, as he conquers the world. Uh, So waiting for today at uh, 3 p.m., there was a lot of anticipation that uh, because of the uh, tit-for-tat firing uh, that has been going on between Hezbollah, which is uh, the uh, terrorist group that uh, Nasrallah controls under the auspices of the Mad Mullahs in Iran, uh, that uh, this uh, speech could have very well been the uh, go-ahead, the declaration of war uh, against Israel, uh, where uh, Hezbollah would Mm. fully enter the fray. Uh, Well, uh, I don't know if it was because the nation of Algeria Uh, stole his thunder. Uh, Algeria, believe it or not, uh, passed legislation and the president of Algeria said he was going to sign it officially declaring war on Israel because of uh, the conflict that is going on there. The Houthi rebels, which is about half of uh, the country of Yemen, uh, really the ones that are running the show, they have the 800-pound gorilla status in Yemen, uh, have also declared war on uh, Israel. Uh, but uh, everybody was wondering, uh, okay, what is Hassan Nasrallah going to say? And are we really going to see things light up, if you will? Well, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm hearkening back to my childhood uh, where I lived in California. There was this uh, town called Fillmore where you could go and get fireworks. It was the only place uh, around that sold fireworks. And you know, you'd, you'd come back with one of those uh, packages of, of, of fireworks and, you know, we were really excited about these sort of things. But uh, one of the things we discovered about these fireworks was, you know, some of these cones and things like that would go off and we would ooh and ah. But inevitably, there was uh, this thing uh, called uh, Smokey Joe. And uh, Smokey Joe looked like kind of a hobo sort of a character with this very large... Uh, projectile that would stick out of his mouth looking like a cigar and boy that really looked impressive but you light up Smokey Joe and basically it would just puff out a few uh, things of uh, dark smoke and that was it well Hassan Nasrallah's speech I would say in my estimation is uh, the uh, geopolitical equivalent of a Smokey Joe uh, because uh, really uh, in a kind of a fascinating uh, series of developments, uh, the, the first thing that this terrorist leader said is, well, we've already uh, declared war on Israel. We've been at war with Israel since October 8th. I don't know what the big deal is. <laughs> um, well, I think I know what the big deal is. Uh, Hassan Nasrallah has been told by 
his Iranian handlers. Um, off your coast, there are two U.S. aircraft carrier uh, attack groups. Uh, you don't want to uh, tip your hand right now. You start firing off the some 200,000 missiles that uh, Hezbollah controls in Lebanon. Uh, you're going to arouse the ire of the United States. And if you arouse the ire of the United States and the United States gets wind of the fact that uh, the Iranian mad mullahs are the ones pulling the strings, uh, they may come after us. So I think their attack dog uh, was definitely uh, put on, on hold. He said this in his speech. Some say, here, Nasrallah wants to announce the joining of the campaign. We already entered the campaign on October 8th. Uh, he took the time to repeatedly mock the Israeli state and its leadership, claiming that the proclaimed goal of destroying Hamas would be impossible to reach. He said the war causes security, military, psychological, and moral earthquake in the Israeli occupation entity, and no matter what he does, he will not be able to change the results. He uh, repeated his metaphor of Israel as a spider web that would prove easy to remove. Well, if it was so easy to remove, you would think he would have done it by now. Huh. Uh, in keeping with his claim that Hezbollah was already taking part in the war, he attempted to play up his organization's contribution in weakening Israel's war effort and asserted that one-third of the Israeli army was stationed on the Lebanese border, which is true. What is happening on our front is very important and influential because all the Israeli military positions from the sea to Sheba farms are being subject to daily and intensified attacks that target positions from tanks, drones, soldiers, and surveillance equipment. In an unveiled threat, he said, we will not be satisfied with the operations taking place today on the border with occupied Palestine. The possibility that the Lebanese front will escalate into a wide war is a realistic possibility. However, he repeatedly claimed that the Hamas assault was 100% Palestinians and that the other members of the resistance axis, including Hezbollah, had not been informed of Hamas's plans beforehand. In other words, oh, they just went off. We had no idea that this was going to happen. Uh, the Al-Aqsa flood battle was decided and implemented 100% Palestinian. He said its absolute secrecy was what ensured its resounding success. So uh, this may be a possible attempt uh, to avert Israel and America's strikes against Lebanon or Iran, which recent media reports suggested were involved in the training and preparing of Hamas terrorists before the October 7th assault. Nevertheless, he thanked terror groups in Yemen and Iraq for taking responsibility as part of uh, the resistance. Uh, finally, uh, despite long passages praising the heroism of the Gazan people, Nasrallah promised them absolutely no concrete help. Uh, quote, the people of Gaza are legendary people unparalleled in the world. They emerge from under the rubble and shout that everything they offer is a sacrifice for the resistance uh, and Palestine, offering lessons in heroism. Concluding his speech, Nasrallah offered Gaza's people weak consolation without announcing any concrete steps. He said, the battle today is a battle of steadfastness, patience, endurance, the accumulation of achievements, and preventing the enemy from achieving its goals. So um, I would have to say this is kind of the uh, smoking Joe of uh, all massive declarations of war that we have going on here. Uh, now, uh, following this, there were some that breathed a sigh of relief. Well, it doesn't look like Hezbollah is going to get involved 
in this conflict. Maybe it's calming down. Well, our good friend Amir Serfati commented, I wouldn't lower my guards after Nasrallah's speech. He may want to put us to sleep and then strike when we're expecting the least. In fact, we must uh, respond to every uh, anti-tank rocket mortar shell by destroying a quality target, such as the storage of missiles, etc. cetera. Uh, the reaction in Gaza to Nasrallah's speech uh, this uh, came from a CNN source. He said that a spokesman from uh, Hamas said, there is none beside us but Allah. In other words, we've been abandoned by the people we thought were going to come to mm. our aid. Uh, how desperate are things getting in Gaza? Well, uh, a couple of very interesting things are happening here. First of all, the IDF has been called out, uh, much like uh, the supposed hospital bombing uh, for an attack near the Shifa hospital. Uh, IDF planes took out a convoy of what looked like ambulances leaving the Shifa hospital. But uh, the IDF said, we attacked Hamas terrorists who are trying to escape from Gaza to Egypt in Red Crescent ambulances. Uh, as if to verify this, uh, the verification for this came from a very interesting source. And uh, once again, I think uh, we see that seeing uh, Islamic terrorism as a monolith, you know, that they're all just so committed to destroying Israel that that's all they think about. No, they, they are not just haters of Israel and anti-Semites. They also very much hate each other. And here's a great example uh, of this. Uh, the head of the, Palestine, uh, the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas, said this, uh, the Hamas leaders and I say this for the first time, fled Gaza to Sinai in ambulances, leaving their people behind. Uh, again, did he just say what I thought he said, that uh, their main way of getting their head honchos out was using ambulances to get them into Egyptian territory so that they don't get taken out? Uh, yeah, I think he just did. And that's also a war crime, but who's counting at this point, as long as they're not Jews? Yeah. So, you know, very interesting. Well, how desperate are things getting in uh, Gaza? Uh, another breaking news story, Hamas snipers have reportedly killed dozens of children and women on the streets, targeting those attempting to travel from north to south Gaza. Uh, we've uh, mentioned to you that Israel, uh, the IDF, has completed an encircling maneuver and has cut off North Gaza from South Gaza, North Gaza, including uh, the uh, the hospital structure uh, that uh, Hamas uses as its main command con and control center, that has been the uh, the subject of a lot of controversy. All of that's been surrounded, and Israel is about the business of tightening the noose. They are systematically destroying the terror tunnels that are involved there. But this development pretty significant. Uh, Hamas snipers have killed dozens of children and women on the streets, targeting those who attempt to travel from north to south. And anyone displaying white flags as a sign of peace is, are being taken out by snipers. Uh, similar acts have previously been attributed to Palestinian and Hezbollah terrorists in Syria. They do not want civilians to leave. They want them to use them as human shields and kill anyone who attempts to lead. Uh, Hamas terrorists in Gaza will, as usual, blame Israel because it's easy and the media accepts this propaganda, a uh, Arab journalist was quoted as saying. Well, uh, that's sounding quite 
desperate at this point. Uh, now, what can we anticipate as a result of all of this? Well, there are some who will say, well, as we told you, uh, this is a birth pain. It is a painful birth pain for Israel. Uh, obviously, the loss of 1,400 people in the initial attacks, uh, the beheading of children, uh, the, uh, the, the wholesale slaughter of individuals in Israeli towns, the 200 people that died at the concert that was um, outside the walls of Gaza, uh, certainly uh, a, uh, an intense and painful blow. But it doesn't appear that uh, Hezbollah is going to provide the two-front uh, assault that uh, perhaps Hamas was anticipating. Uh, very interesting comment uh, that was passed along this same line uh, by uh, no less an individual than Benjamin Netanyahu. Netanyahu said that if Hezbollah gets involved, there will be an unimaginable, his word, uh, response by Israel hmm. to uh, Hezbollah in Lebanon. Now, what unimaginable means, we can only speculate. Uh, the head of the IDF also used similar language uh, saying that Israel has weapons and capabilities that its enemies uh, would not be able to dream of in their worst nightmares. Hmm. Now, I don't know what he's talking about here, wow. but uh, <clears throat> certainly Israel uh, is showing that they mean business. So what we very well may see happen is, and this is not going to be an open and shut deal, it is going to take uh, quite a bit of time to do this, but we may see uh, the rest of the axis of terrorists back off from all of this. Uh, we're keeping an eye on the fact that a huge amount of jihadis uh, from Iranian-backed militias in Iraq have moved into Syria at this time and are heading south. Uh, perhaps what we're seeing is Hassan Nasrallah playing for time. Uh, perhaps Hezbollah doesn't want to launch its rockets until this uh, additional infantry, if you will, is in position to invade the north. Uh, we definitely need to be praying and continuing on along this line. But if uh, the fact that we have this U.S. carrier group, the fact that uh, Anthony Blinken, our Secretary of State, met with uh, Benjamin Netanyahu today and uh, implored Netanyahu to uh, provide fuel for Gaza so that they could continue to have energy uh, there. Uh, well, Netanyahu's response to Anthony Blinken was, go pound sand. Uh, we're not going to provide fuel for Gaza. Why? Well, if you were with us on the broadcast yesterday, you know that uh, one of the uh, things that uh, Hamas does is they take fuel from any and every source they can get. Why? Because petrol, petroleum, is the preferred system for energizing the ventilation system on their terror tunnels. Without having petroleum to run these ventilation systems, the terror tunnels are going to become suffocating death traps. So Israel is not going to, as a humanitarian gesture, allow the, uh, petroleum to enter into Gaza uh, because they know what's going to happen. No matter what it is purported to be used for, oh, we need it for the hospitals, oh, we need it for energy, we need it this and this. Uh, they know where it's going to go. They know it's going to continue to fuel these terror tunnels. Now, one of the big uh, emphases that Israel is taking in this uh, particular part of the war is uh, sending in commandos, both Israeli and, from what I understand, uh, United States commandos, uh, again, like the Delta Force and the Navy SEALs, 
to try to locate where the 240-some hostages are being held in Gaza. And perhaps the strategy is to continue to deny uh, exit uh, to the leaders of uh, Hamas, uh, to continue to have them pinned in here. Uh, there have already been reports that uh, through back channels, the leaders of Hamas said, uh, well, uh, we're willing to uh, go along with a ceasefire as long as you guarantee a safe passage to Lebanon or to Iran, uh, to which Israel once again said, go pound sand. You're not getting out of here. Uh, the, the level of atrocity uh, that took place here would not allow Israel to do anything else but finish off the, these, uh, these terroristic leaders. So uh, what we're seeing here, I think, is that news tightening. Uh, I think the reason it is being done incrementally is because, let's face it, this kind of urban warfare is not anything that is easily accomplished in any way, shape, or form. Uh, once you get in the place where you've got uh, snipers and you've got IEDs uh, positioning, positioning themselves in rubbles, getting in, into a war of attrition, very, very difficult, difficult uh, sledding. And Especially that's why why they're estimating this is going to take months, if not a year. To Especially complete. when you're moving heaven and earth to protect civilians, right. not Palestinian civilians. Right. But uh, what the strategy may very well be, and some sources that I, I've read seem to think this is the case, is that the increasing squeeze is going to be put on the leaders of Hamas until such time as they make an unconditional gesture to release all of the hostages mm -hmm. that they have. If that happens, then there may be room after that for some kind of uh, uh, mediation in terms of uh, the destruction of Hamas. Mm. But even with that being said, I don't believe that Israel, because of the horrific Holocaustian nature of what has taken place in this assault, will settle for anything less than uh, the complete dismantlement uh, the complete, uh, you know, in a sense, decapitation, if you want to use that term, of Hamas as a terrorist organization. Uh, once that happens, uh, what's going to happen in Gaza? Uh, how is a government going to be constituted along that line? Uh, there's some indications that Israel may uh, involve Egypt in some sense uh, as uh, being uh, the ones that uh, oversee Gaza as a civilian territory as a Palestinian territory, but also oversee it in such a way that Hamas cannot regrow its roots and uh, keep going. Because uh, again, Adrian, you're just back from Egypt. And one thing that Egypt has made abundantly clear is uh, they would rather watch all the Palestinians be slaughtered than allow them to enter into Egypt. They are not going to allow <clears throat> any kind of resettling of Palestinians in Egypt. Why? Because they understand history. Wherever the Palestinians mm -hmm. have gone, whether it's Yasser Arafat's career, whether it's uh, the, uh, the West Bank, uh, the intifadas that have happened there, uh, whether it's what's gone on in Gaza, they have been an incredibly destabilizing force. They mm -hmm. were in Tunisia, they were in Lebanon, continue to be in Lebanon, and uh, Egypt wants no part of them. Uh, so uh, Egypt and Israel, because they have a peace treaty, may have to work something out mm. where uh, there is some sort of shared administration of what's left of this particular territory and the people that are involved there. But there's going to be no resettlement, no relocation of uh, the Palestinians that are involved there. 
it's it's just uh, a complete and total mess. Now, Russia, you know, has, as we have mentioned, has been uh, saber-rattling a bit. Uh, the Wagner Group, the mercenaries that uh, were really involved with the Ukraine, has said that they were going to provide Hezbollah in uh, Lebanon with the SS-22 anti-aircraft uh, batteries. Uh, they're rough equivalent of our Patriot missiles, mm. if you will. Uh, why would Russia want to get involved in all this? Well, interestingly, prior to this, with the U Ukraine situation, Israel uh, had remained very, very neutral. And uh, Vladimir Putin seemed to be very grateful about that. Again, uh, the Ukrainians, uh, Zelensky had made overtures to Israel about why can't you send us weapons? Israel says, it's not our fight. We're going to stay out of it. It appears that uh, Putin uh, seemed to uh, appreciate that. But uh, again, uh, what has happened since then? Well, immediately after October 7th, Putin invited uh, two major uh, parts of a Hamas delegation uh, hosted in Moscow uh, and uh, met with him. Uh, and uh, once again, uh, the Russian move ostensibly was to facilitate the uh, deliverance of Russian prisoners that were kept by Hamas. But uh, once again, uh, why has uh, Russia uh, turned tail and is now supporting attacks on Israel? Well, it's not because of anti-Semitism. It doesn't appear that Putin is an anti-Semite. Had he been one, uh, you probably uh, read about the harrowing events that took place in the airport in uh, the Russian region of Dagestan, where a Muslim mob stormed an airplane looking for Jews to lynch, in, in a sense. Well, uh, the official Russian position was to put down this kind of demonstration and to protect the Jewish people and to reroute them so that they were out of harm's way. Police rounded up and arrested scores of these rioters. So again, Putin's not driven by any kind of emotions about the Jews, but he does understand one thing. As long as the focus is on Israel, guess what the focus isn't on anymore? It's not on the Ukraine. Uh, in fact, mm. uh, the strategy appears to be working in a sense because uh, even our uh, House of Representatives uh, voted for a $14 billion foreign aid package to go to Israel to support them in all of this, mm -hmm. but they separated it as a separate line item from the four or five times the amount of money that the Biden administration wanted to send to Ukraine. Mm. And, uh, and so we can see that Israel is the focus, at least, of Congress. So, uh, again, national game of Russia isn't soccer, it's not football, it's not basketball, it's chess. And so we can see that Putin is kind of being a chess master here. He realizes his Ukraine war may lag on for years and years and years. Hmm. But if the focus of the world is now on Israel and Hamas, that definitely gives him some breathing room. And that would definitely uh, make it in his interest to make sure that this uh, conflict continues uh, for the extended future, which is why uh, we may see the Wagner Group uh, moving such uh, sophisticated weaponry into the hands of Hezbollah to uh, prompt them to want to get involved with this and keep the pot stirred, mm -hmm. if you will. Uh, the problem when you start doing things like this is you're playing a very dangerous game. 
when you uh, arm terrorists with these kind of, uh, well, anti-aircraft uh, facilities. Uh, one of the things that Nasrallah went out of his way to mention is that uh, they were not afraid at all of the U.S. presence in the Mediterranean and that the U.S. presence could be easily wiped away by them if they chose to do so. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, some people are saying, could this whole thing turn into World War III? Well, as close as we've gotten very, very close to World War III on two occasions. Number one was the Cuban Missile Crisis. And the Cuban Missile Crisis almost turned into World War III when uh, Nikita Khrushchev looked at John F. Kennedy as a weak president, believed he would back down if Russia bullied him, uh, didn't like the idea that we had uh, uh, Minuteman missiles stationed in Turkey and wanted to have his rough equivalent of the same things in Cuba. And so, you know, again, the famous uh, flyovers that took place, the pictures of the, uh, the missiles being in placements being built in Cuba, the fact that uh, a uh, Russian convoy was heading for Cuba with these missiles, the United States faced them down. But uh, we almost went to war with Russia over all of this. I remember one of my earliest memories of that time uh, was my parents uh, taking us to my grandparents' hotel in Santa Monica because they had a, a concrete reinforced underground parking structure. And there had been a false uh, alarm. A, uh, the air raid sirens went off in Santa Monica in the midst mm-hmm. of all of this and not knowing exactly how this was all going to turn out. We were all scared to death. But then things backed down and, uh, you know, again, Russia mm-hmm. backed off. We came very, very close. The second time we've come close to World War III was the 1973 Yom Kippur War. Uh, you may not realize it, but uh, you've heard of DEFCON. You ever watched the movie War Games and, and such mm-hmm. or any of the Terminator movies? You're <clears throat> familiar with the DEFCON system. DEFCON 5 is kind of the uh, all is well. Things are nervous, but uh, nothing's going on here. You get down to DEFCON 1. DEFCON 1 indicates we've gone to nuclear war. During the, uh, the Yom Kippur War, Israel turned the tide against the Egyptians and had surrounded the Egyptians' main army in the Sinai Peninsula, had cut off their egress across the Suez Canal and was getting ready to wipe them out. Uh, Vlad, or I should say Leonid Brezhnev got on the phone to Richard Nixon and said, if Israel wipes out the Egyptians in the Sinai, we're going to blow the Sixth Fleet out of the Mediterranean. Wow. We went to DEFCON 2. I remember waking up very early in the morning uh, to go to school in 1973. And uh, we, uh, because of all the crisis in the Middle East, uh, we hadn't gone on daylight savings time, so it was very, very dark. Uh, The first thing I heard on the radio was uh, United States nuclear forces on standby alert. This is KFI News. Apparently, we came very, very close at that time to going to nuclear war with Russia. So all of this is just to say that when you start having these kind of assets and you start having these kind of chess-like moves going on in the Middle East and you have very unstable individuals like Hassan Nasrallah uh, in charge of vast amounts of military capabilities, uh, things can get out of hand in a New York minute. So we need to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. I believe that what we're seeing here is a birth pain and what we very well may see, you know, get bring it back to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I believe about birth pains is this, wars and rumors of wars, particularly involving Israel, 
would build up to a fever pitch, just like a labor pain. Uh, it would seem like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? And then suddenly it's going to calm down again. But the frequency and the intensity is going to get shorter and shorter and shorter, more pronounced and more pronounced as a big event draws near. We might be seeing the culmination of this particular birth pain. Uh, Israel is going to have to go ahead and take care of the Hamas situation. But uh, when we see Hassan Nasrallah giving uh, the ultimate uh, letdown speech that caused even his uh, fellows in, uh, in Gaza to say, we've been abandoned, we've been left alone, uh, we may be seeing things calm down a bit. But um, I want to underestimate what Amir said uh, we, Israel doesn't want to take down its guard unless this is a feint saying, oh, we're backing off and then kaboom, we still have those uh, jihadis heading in from Iraq into Syrian territory right now. So. And the removal of Hamas and Hezbollah from the plane table would do humanity a lot of favors. So, mm. yeah. By the way, if you want to have a very thorough uh, overview of biblical prophecy as it pertains to the last days, I'd encourage you to go to our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com, and then just click on Most Recent Messages, and when that finishes loading up, you'll see at the very top, the very most recent message that, uh, or message that we've posted, and then if you click on Bible Prophecy, you can actually see a host of messages pertaining to the subject, as well as our most recent ones, so I'd encourage you to check that out if you would like to kind of have a good overview of what the New Testament and uh, go through the book of Ezekiel. Last Wednesday's message was uh, really compelling. I had to listen to it twice because I just thought, I don't see how anyone who takes to the view, which is called preterism, the idea that all biblical prophecy has been fulfilled and that there are no more future events to take place as far as what the Bible predicts, I just was thought, it's so crystal clear in that chapter that this is something that's going to take place in the future. It has not happened yet. Um, I don't understand the perspective that those folks would have, but uh, it was a really good message. So I'd encourage you to check it out. They always find a way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, never, you know, figures don't lie, but liars figure. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, we do have a few questions, but, I, you know, Pastor Scott, if I may throw my own little hat in the ring, how do Christians, in light of the narrative, I, I noticed that uh, there was an article by a, a former White House correspondent for Playboy magazine, Brian Karam, who likened Christians, what he called Christian nationalists, as a, a greater threat and danger to America than Hamas ever could be, that we should be removed, uh, really vile uh, writing. But this is a person who is part of the White House press pool saying these kinds of things he also writes for playboy magazine so you can <laughs> you know i mean you can kind of imagine where that's going to go but but but, the, but and he uses know, let, christian nationalism let, let me, unironically yeah let me let me throw this out to you sean christian nationalism that doesn't just mean that there's christians in a nation right there's a philosophy there's a movement called christian nationalism correct well Again, there's movements that can be known by a lot of names. The question is whether or not the ideas behind them speak for as many Christians as they associate with it. The 
term like anything else on the internet is not going to be something you can hold against somebody or narrow down. So in a nutshell, it's essentially the internet's attempt to find something more original to say than you're all a bunch of Nazis. Uh, when it comes down to the, I guess, best comparative example, Sam Harris, uh, probably uh, that atheist and philosopher, uh, put forward the idea that Christians are just trying to introduce a theocracy and that we're a threat to all things moral and decent in society. And you see modern caricatures of Christianity and A Handmaid's Tale and so forth. Meanwhile, actual examples of that in Sharia law are being celebrated on college campuses, but I digress. When it comes to the idea of Christian nationalism, it's like I said, a non-starter and a red flag to the rationality of the person you're talking to, because it's little more than a slogan to say, you're one of those, and fill in the blank for whatever evil group you want to categorize it with. Why? Because nationalism, or the idea of a nation being superior to others, is a position where people will try to marginalize you into a group and saying, you just think you're better than everyone else. And Christians naturally think that their view is a correct one, but then they'll hyper-exaggerate that from a moral position to a political movement, and from a political movement into a world-dominating force that needs to be stopped, lest they start beheading our babies, and on it goes. So when you encounter someone like that, literally just filter that through as saying, oh, I'm being called a Nazi, I'm being called Hitler, I'm being called evil because fill in marginalized group and victim status for those who aren't you. It's like everything else. It's an attempt to both victimize and demonize themselves and their enemies in one fell swoop. Mm -hmm. That if you think you're right, you're evil. But I, that doesn't apply to me. When I'm right, I'm just right. And that's yeah. where the conversation hopefully be more productive, because like I said, someone brings this up unironically, or they heard it from someone else, challenge that. Because most yeah. of the time, this is how you dissuade these kinds of bad conversations. Did you hear that from somebody, or is this your idea? Because you didn't get that from an actual Christian. And now, if you're just a Bible-believing Christian, they're throwing you in that category. Yeah, you're just it, trying to demonize a group of people. Yeah, now there are morons, and I say that unironically, like Nick Fuentes, who tries to associate himself with Christianity, and he is an avowed national Aryan socialist, not just a so, uh, nationalist. He is a socialist. He believes in white supremacy. He affirms these sort of things. Forming an internet following that is unfortunately more popular than most of the skinhead groups, but when it comes to the idea of Christian nationalism, it's a buzzword. It's not worth paying attention mm. to. So how do Christians then, who believe theologically that we ought to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, that, that Israel, this is part of biblical prophecy, this is God's plan, uh, not for necessarily political reasons, but for theological reasons. How can we, in light of this narrative, global anti-Semitic narrative, how do we offer a good response to be able to proudly say, hey, I believe and support Israel without in, in combating that negative uh, barrage of stigma that comes with what the world is saying so anti-Semitically yeah, and, and sure. offer a good answer. Sure. Well, I think the best answer, it kind of comes back to a lot of things in our walk with God. Know what you believe and why you believe it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, again, I think uh, we should be pro-Israel. Why? Uh, why should I be pro-Israel? Well, and if someone asked me that question, uh, I have a response. Because God made promises 
to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which were unconditional promises. They were not based upon the performance of even any of these patriarchs. You might recall that when God made promises to Abraham, when he finalized his covenant with him in the book of Genesis chapter 15, uh, the, the way that they would make a covenant, the, the literal Hebrew means you would cut a covenant. And, and that was uh, probably more graphic than you would understand because if you were going to enter into a covenantal relationship with somebody, it was more than just uh, you know, a legal agreement. You were literally pledging your lives, your sacred honor, everything to one another. You, you were saying, uh, if I don't fulfill the terms of this covenant, you know, uh, strike me dead. And, and to illustrate that, they would take an animal and they would slaughter it. And they would take half of the slaughtered animal and they'd put it on one side of this path. The other half of the slaughtered animal put it on another side of a path. And the two making the covenant would walk together through the slaughtered remains of this animal, mm. saying to one another, may this be me if I do not perform this particular covenant, all of its terms. Never well, look at a red carpet the same way again. <laughs> yeah, well, fascinating, uh, mm -hmm. in Genesis 15, God makes a covenant with Abraham, that he would mm -hmm. bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him, that his descendants would be a blessing to the entire world. And how did God cut his covenant? Well, he told Abraham to slaughter an animal, put both pieces on either side, and to wait, to wait. And, uh, you know, again, Abraham you know, chased away the vultures and the carrying birds and the things that wanted to go after, you know, this, uh, these slaughtered pieces of an animal. And uh, finally, uh, this uh, image, like a smoking oven, showed up. And Abraham was unable to stand. He was like paralyzed watching this happen. And this smoking oven, the presence of God, moved between the pieces, saying, God's way of saying, I will perform this no matter, and, and it's not dependent on you, Abraham. It's dependent on me. Abraham never had to walk through. No, he never walked through the, 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 the cutting of that covenant. Mm. And it was such an important thing to see that that was the way it began. God made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, absolutely unconditional. And the reason I emphasize that is that there are some people who say, yeah, but the Jews rejected Jesus, so I guess the, the, the promises to Abraham were off. Well, if Abraham had walked through the pieces together with God and had, uh, you know, had to hold up his end of the bargain, if you will, uh, then maybe you got a point. Um, God honored the covenant, say, with Jacob, even though Jacob was not what I would call the most moral or the most upstanding individual, but God was faithful to his promises. He would do what he promised to do, whether men held up their end of the bargain or not. And, and so a lot of times when we see people getting involved with um, anti-Semitism or what is known as replacement theology, some call it supersessionism, that uh, you know because the Jews rejected the Messiah, uh, now all the promises are spiritualized and given to the church. Uh, no, God made promises uh, to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob. They said, well, he made promises to Jesus, and that, that's how they, they were all fulfilled. Yeah, he did make promises to Jesus. We see that in the book of Hebrews. Today, you're my son. You're my son. Today, I've begotten you, and so on. But he also made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and their descendants forever. Mm -hmm. uh, not uh, a conditional 
uh, covenant, not a temporal covenant, but an eternal covenant, a agreement that he would always keep. And so when we understand that, I always go back with people and say, Genesis 12, 3, God said what he meant and meant what he said. Mm -hmm. I will bless those who bless you and Mm -hmm. curse those who curse you. And so because of that, we stand with the sons and daughters of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, some people will say, and you even run into this in some evangelical circles, that Israel as it exists now is not prophetically significant. Um, you know, some pastors I could mention that you've probably heard of before mm-hmm. take that particular position. But as you mentioned, in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39, it is absolutely inescapable the language that's used. Boy, read Ezekiel chapter 38, uh, this idea of Israel being gathered back into the land after the land had been desolate for ages, literally. And we're finally uh, there and living in peace when this uh, last day's invasion takes place. Uh, You know, you look at uh, Ezekiel chapters 36 and 37 that set the stage for all of this. All of them imply that uh, God's people were not going to be exempt from you know, again, reaping what they sowed, suffering the consequences of their own actions, uh, being under God's disciplinary hand, they would, but God would be faithful to them. In fact, in the book of Jeremiah, we are told, uh, God saying, if my covenant with the night and the day, hmm. so that the, the sun and the moon uh, will no longer rise in their appointed times, if that can be set aside, so I will set aside my covenant with you. And who is he talking to at this time? the most debauched bunch of idolaters you could possibly ever mm. imagine. With, with very few exceptions, the, the vast minority of Israel were faithful, but God was faithful to his promises. Mm. And so when we see this and we see Israel today, the people that say, oh, well, this doesn't have anything to do with prophecy, I'm just like, how much more proof do you need? Uh, Israel surviving as a people group? Uh, after all of the pogroms, after all the thousands of years that they were removed from their native land, mm-hmm. after all the pressure to go along and get along and cease identifying as being Jewish or, or being, say, a Cohen, a member of the Levite tribe or a member of Benjamin or the other names that we see, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you would want to cover that up uh, and, and forget about. And yet, and yet the land completely destroyed by the mismanagement of it, uh, the Ottoman, Ottoman Turk Empire. Mm-hmm. It's a completely wasted land, suddenly redeemed, brought back so it becomes one of the leading exporters of fruits and vegetables to the entire world. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at this sort of thing and you're like, um, how can you not see the miraculous here? How can you not see God's hand upon this? You know, we start with Scripture. We don't just start by doing newspaper eschatology, as we call it. (laughs) We start with Scripture, but we go, this lines up perfectly. And for someone to say, well, this is not, um, or this is spiritualized, there's nothing in that passage that indicates this is spiritual. It only indicates that it's literal. In fact, as we often say, uh, you know, if the literal sense makes sense, seek no other sense, lest you... Believe in nonsense. (laughs) Right. So, uh, so you know, the reason we take the position that we do is not because, you know, we have friends in Israel. We do. Uh, not because we're, you know, sympathetic to what the Jews have suffered down through time. We are. But because the Scripture lays out that not only did God have a plan for Israel in the past, using them 
as the ones who would bring the message of salvation to the world, bring God's mm -hmm. truth to the world, be the ones through whom Messiah himself would come according to the flesh. Jesus born mm -hmm. of the tribe of Judah, a descendant of David. Uh, not only do we have respect for the Jewish people because of all that, but we also have respect for them because we've read about their future. In uh, the book of Romans, chapters 9 through 11, we are told that right now a hardening in part has happened to Israel, but eventually God is going to do such a powerful work that according to Romans chapter 11, verse 25, all Israel is going to be saved. There's going to be this massive turning en masse as a nation to faith in the true and living God. We see the 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Some people say, well, what about the, 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 the tribes are lost? They're not lost to God. God keeps track of all of that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, well, you know, is there really still a, a tribe of Zebulun uh, around there? Well, I'm sure there are some Zebulonites around somewhere. God knows exactly who they are. Mm -hmm. At least 12,000. At, at least we know <laughs> from Revelation chapter 7. People say, well, that's spiritual. Okay, show me anything in that passage that says that's spiritual. How can you read in that passage yeah. and say, well, no, these are super Jehovah's Witnesses or uh, these... <laughs> These are, uh, you know, reformed theologians that have, yeah. you know, they you know. find a way. So, you know, we're going to see that. We're going to see Old Testament style Jewish prophets having this worldwide impact. Mm. According to Revelation chapter 11, God is not finished with the Jewish people. He has mm. a future for them. So whenever I interact with any of my Jewish friends, there's a sense of awe about it because, first of all, they're related to Abraham. You know, when we went to Israel, uh, we went to this place called Tel Dan where there is an arch that uh, led into the city mm -hmm. of, of Dan. Uh, the scripture tells us that Abraham visited the city of Dan. This is the oldest still standing architectural arch in the world. Uh, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, incredibly protected and all this other stuff. But while we were standing there, it just blew my mind to think, Abraham walked through that arch. Yeah. And you know, when I think of the respect that I have for what God did in the life of Abraham, when I look into the eyes of my Jewish friends, I go, these are his descendants. Mm. The same guy that walked through the arch at Tel Dan, these are his sons and his daughters. And God made a very special, uh, unconditional, unilateral promise, grace-based promise mm. to Abraham that is still something that he takes very seriously in the lives of his people today. I got to experience that same thing in 2014. And what a, you know, Paul says in to the church in Corinth that these things happened as an example to us. And what an example of God's favor and unconditional love towards not just his people Israel, but all of us. When we fail and sin, we can come to him and that he's faithful even if we remain even if we become faithless he is faithful. yeah and and i mean that answers another objection they go well you know most jewish people hate christians and you know they just assume spit at you as uh talk to you well first of all um the heredity is they're, they're known the orthodox the ultra orthodox might feel that way for historical reasons and you know again there's some context you there. know <laughs> there's some context behind all of that i i get it but the average jewish person i, I go to israel and they are just glad you're there Mm -hmm. they, they are very, yeah. very uh, welcoming people, very uh, embracing people. They're hospitable people. They want you to come to their homes and, and so on. Uh, and they know where I'm coming from as a, as a born-again Christian pastor. And, uh, you know, again, uh, Michael Medved, the uh, famous uh, radio uh, personality, uh, worked for Salem Broadcasting. They said, well, how can you work for Salem Broadcasting? They're Christians and you're a Jew. 
He goes, well, I know that as a conservative Jew that doesn't believe Jesus is the Messiah, they think I'm going to hell. But as long as they treat me like heaven while I'm here, I'm not <laughs> going to argue. You know, and, and, and so we want to demonstrate to our Jewish friends the reality of a relationship with their Messiah, Jesus, because Paul himself said that, uh, you know, by reaching out to the Gentiles, what he wanted to do was make them jealous, making them want to have this relationship Mm -hmm. with God. So the more that we can love our Jewish friends, the more, you know, we can acknowledge the differences, right? But the more they can see that we are sharing with them because we truly care about them Mm -hmm. and, and that we respect their Jewishness, we respect their heritage, uh, the more effective I think we're going to be mm. in terms of our outreach to them. <clears throat> what a great perspective. Thank you for the encouragement. And what a biblical perspective. Uh, real quick, lightning round. Um, Sean, is Goliath buried in Golgotha? No, the skull was taken to Jerusalem, but we don't know specifically where. We also know that uh, about a decade and change afterwards, Jerusalem was actually under the control of the Israelites, so David didn't actually hang out in Jerusalem. It was in the outskirts. Golgotha, also known as Mount Calvary, where we get our fellowship's namesake, uh, is the place of the skull. It was more a comment about the shape of the hill. Any idea of Goliath's skull being buried specifically there is speculation. Great, thank you. Scott, know thyself. Is this a biblical concept or is this Eastern philosophy? It's, it's, <laughs> e- it's Eastern philosophy. Yeah, it is a parallel to Sun Tzu. He said, know your enemy and know yourself. You'll always be victorious. But uh, the Bible says uh, in the, the book of Jeremiah, chapter 17, that the heart of man is uh, uh, deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And it says, I, the Lord, am the one who searches the hearts and the minds. Uh, if you've ever found yourself going, I am shocked and surprised at what I just said, or I never thought I could do that, or man, you know, I, my, my temper got the best of me and I just didn't even know that was in me. Well, I think it's a pretty good indicator that we don't know ourselves. But the good news is God knows us. He knows us inside and out. You've searched me, O Lord, known me. You know my downsitting, my uprising. Uh, you know my uh, rising up and laying down. Before there's a word on my tongue, O Lord, you know it all mm-hmm. together. Uh, God knows us inside and out, and he loves us unconditionally because of his amazing grace. Uh, I would much rather uh, know myself the way God reveals Hmm. who I am as a human being than try to look within myself, do some sanctified navel-gazing, and try to figure out my life that way. Good, good. Uh, Thank you, accessibility friend and Phil, for those questions. Seeking Your Truth wants to know, why doesn't God just make himself known? I'm not talking about Jesus appearing, but God the Father in full glory. People would believe this, and and they're pointing out that I'm not trying to make a strong man argument. I'm just saying that why biblically does God not just in all glory just appear, and then everyone would cease being disbelieving? Uh, Well, three things, I guess, then. First of all, in the book of Exodus, uh, in the 30s, I believe, when Moses was on Mount Sinai, and as well in the Gospel of John chapter 1, no one can see God and live. If you were to be exposed to a very limited source of power and glory, like, for instance, the sun of our solar system, in the same way that you and I are interacting, we can understand how the nuclear fission would be very bad for your complexion. Same way is true for the presence of God. If we're talking about something that not only introduced this universe, but is beyond and above its glory, we wouldn't survive a very modest-sized sun, uh, let alone the sun of glory. Uh, Likewise, if we're to say, well, everyone would believe if God just 
showed up. No, they'd find another explanation for it. Richard Dawkins, in an interview, publicly admitted this when he said, you know, I used I used to believe that when people would say, oh, there's a God out there, if he would just spell out, oh, I am God, and stop all your whining down there. Uh, he <laughs> then said, well, I, <laughs> I'd be more willing to believe, this is a quote, that it was a hyper-advanced civilization that was just messing with me as opposed to a divine being. So when you adopt the mindset of hyper-skepticism, yeah. there is no off switch. You'll find an alternate explanation for everything, even something appearing directly to you, because even a metaphysical solemcist, it's a philosophical position that believes only you exist and everything's just a dream or a hallucination you use to entertain yourself, could find an explanation for that. Uh, the reality is, if you're coming to God, you must first believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Now, if you come to God and say, well, prove to me I'm talking to something right now, it's about as much a non-starter as beginning that with your first date. Are you really a man when you're looking at her? So the, well, maybe today that's more of a reasonable question than it seems, but the point being made is just that. Uh, just make sure that when we're coming to God, we do so on his terms. If we acknowledge the existence of a entity beyond this universe that introduced it, the power that it would exert would literally annihilate all life in said universe. That would not be a reasonable request. That's why it was a much better idea to go by his plan for him to adopt skin, do so through publicly verified miracles, including but not limited to a resurrection from the dead. Mm -hmm. If you won't receive that, then you have Jesus' own words at it. They won't believe the law and the prophets. They wouldn't believe if someone even rose from the dead, even mm -hmm. if he appeared in the heavens. Wow. Well, thanks for that. And thanks for joining us. We hope you have a wonderful weekend. We'll be here, Scott and I, uh, same place, same time on Monday. So please be sure to think about what you might ask and uh, join us. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word. One question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.